This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Due to a new law, residents in Quebec are no longer allowed to cover their face while working in public sector or receiving uh, public sector government services. To talk more about all of this, uh, Faisal Baba is with us, Associate Professor of Law, Osgood Hall Law School, York University, and previously sat as a Vice Chair of the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. And Faisal is with us now. Hello, Faisal. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Glad to be here. So tell me your thoughts. Uh, Where is this going? Where is this law going with Quebec? Uh, Will it stand up? I think uh, there's a there's a I've I've seen a a big consensus across the country amongst legal uh, experts who seem to all be saying there's not a chance that this law will withstand uh, scrutiny, constitutional review. Uh, in the courts. Um, and there's a good question uh, as to whether it will survive political scrutiny because it's largely being viewed as uh, a targeting or a scapegoating of a, a small minority of uh, vulnerable women. Uh, the justice, uh, the Quebec justice minister said that this new law is based on reasons of identification, communication, and security. It's not an attack on Muslim women. Uh, ID, communication, and security, are these valid? Those are valid concerns, but I don't think that that's uh, a valid explanation for the law. And the, the government's been shifting its purposes um, uh, based on, uh, uh, well, I don't, I don't know what based on. It appears willy-nilly. They've at various times justified it in, in the name of security. Of course, Muslim women who wear niqab have always been open to revealing their, their faces for the purpose of security identification. But here we're talking about... Uh, people getting on buses or going into public uh, public buildings, filling out uh, uh, forms, getting getting uh, identification from government service providers. Uh, you're talking about frontline service. Uh, so you know what does that look like? Uh, we're talking about sing- singling out individuals uh, by service providers, bus drivers, and counter workers uh, to apply this law. Uh, themselves against individual citizens. I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. You can imagine uh, how it's going to, uh, how it could play out in terms of uh, attracting unwanted attention to people who really don't need uh, any more unwanted attention, given uh, the level of violence that that women who dress this way have been subjected to in recent uh, months and years. Faisal, did this catch you by surprise? Why now? Why has there been an issue? Why is this an issue now? I think the issue is that uh for whatever reason uh this this issue has been politically uh, uh a political priority in Quebec a previous government uh tried to pass a much stronger and even more uh concerning uh, charter of values uh, a couple of years ago that failed i think my personal theory of what's going on is that this government knows that it can gain some points, just like the federal conservative pri- previous federal conservative government tried to score points off of uh, the issue of of uh, profiting off of the general public's fears and uh, skepticisms towards visible Muslims, uh, given the current climate. I don't think the, the, this Quebec government actually believes in this legislation. Um, I think the government is looking to score political points in advance of of an election uh, and is counting on the uh, population to support them. I'm not sure, and it's not entirely clear, that the population as a whole supports this. And I think there's been quite a bit of pushback, which is uh, welcome from my perspective. Uh, Legally, do they not have to prove there is an issue with ID or communication or security or a reason for doing this? Yeah, anytime you're gonna, anytime the state is gonna infringe uh, somebody's religious freedom, uh, it has to be justified. And the way you justify it is that sh- is that you've got to show that there is a pressing interest, uh, a purpose that needs to be served, and that the means that the the state adopts, so limiting the religious freedom, is is a necessary way to achieve that purpose, and that it's the best way to achieve that purpose. Are there other ways that you can achieve the goal of ensuring security and identification in public uh, without forcing women to take their clothes off, which is something that liberal democracies should really never be doing? Um, I'll play devil's advocate here. Uh, other na- This is the first time this has happened in any jurisdiction in North America. Uh, Belgium, France, even Switzerland have outlawed this uh, for years. 
what's that? How, what does that add to the discussion? How come, especially Switzerland, aren't they utopia? Um, it's a very expensive place to live, uh, from what I can tell. <laughs> when I traveled there, I wouldn't call it utopia. Um, it, it, I think it's a cultural Lot, Lots difference. who support socialism would. Right. Yeah. No. I think there's. I think there's a cultural difference, and I think in English Canada, uh, it does. It, I don't think it means that there is less Islamophobia or less. Uh, 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 discrimination against Muslims in Canada, in English Canada, as compared to French Canada. Um, I do think there's a cultural difference about the perception of, uh, about individual freedom and the perceptions of difference. And so I think English Canada is influenced a lot more by an American individual uh, liberty or even libertarian approach, which is the idea that every individual should be free to manifest their identity in whatever way they want. And that even if we don't like it, even if we aren't comfortable, even if it makes us feel uh, disturbed, uh, our option as a society is to look away, not to try to control how people uh, present themselves. Uh, in the European tradition, um, I think it's fair to say you have more of a collective interest in how people live their lives, and, and there's greater social pressure to conform to certain general norms. Uh, so it's harder to be a minority uh, in Europe than it is in North America. I think that uh, obviously, that's a, that's a statement someone might disagree with me, but that's my my understanding, and I would offer that as an explanation for the difference. I don't think the answer is that Quebecers are more are the most racist people in the country, or though any sort of reductionistic uh, explanation of that sort. I think there's a different conception of what it means to belong in Quebec, but I do think it's it's at odds with uh, the general North American approach to individual rights and liberties. What kind of position does this put the Prime Minister in? I mean, you know, obviously they're both liberal. Uh, it, they don't agree on this. Same with the, the Premier of Ontario. W- what does this do for other leaders, specifically the Prime Minister? Well, it puts the Prime Minister in the position of being a hypocrite, because when he was uh, not in office as Prime Minister and when his party was the third party, he found it um, very uh, comfortable to criticize uh, the then conservative government for its uh, uh, cynical use of Islamophobia to advance political agendas with everything from charter of values, uh, sorry, from uh, values testing uh, uh, to uh, profiling in national security. He also spoke up against uh, the PQ government in in Quebec that was trying to bring in the charter of uh, Quebec values. Now he's in a tougher position because he needs to show uh, sensitivity to issues of federalism and to Quebec autonomy uh, within the, the, the delicate federal uh, balance. But he also uh, needs to demonstrate that he truly is the modern progressive prime minister that he keeps claiming to be. Uh, and so he's been uh, quiet uh, and cagey on this issue. And I think what uh, many Canadians are going to be waiting for is for him to come out much more clearly uh, in support of vulnerable Muslim women who are going to, no doubt, become targets of greater discrimination and violence in Quebec. Uh, what does he have to say? What should he do here? Well, he should express a, a clear, unequivocal position that this is, uh, within the view of the federal government, unconstitutional, that this kind of law uh, is unconstitutional and should be declared as such. Uh, the, the politicians including the, 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 the very liberals who passed this law, I think are waiting for the courts to make the decision. And this is sadly what, what political leaders do when dealing with uh, political hot-button issues, is they punt it to the courts. Mm-hmm. To make the difficult decision for them? Yes. Yes. That's what, why when I, when I say that I'm not sure that this liberal government in Quebec even believes in this law, um, I I think they what they're doing is they're 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 passing it because they know that there's there's it'll get political traction in some sectors of the society not all uh, and then uh, it'll it'll necessarily lead to a court challenge because it it just invites a court challenge it's it's clearly uh, a problem from a constitutional perspective and so that drags the courts into it to make the decision uh, that the political leaders don't have the courage to make which is to shut this kind of discourse down once and for all. Faisal Babhat has been with us, Associate Professor of Law, Osgood Hall Law School, York University, previously sat as a chair, vice chair, at the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. Uh, Faisal, thanks very much for the uh, insight. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks for your interest. All right. Thank you so much.
All right, let's uh, bring in Razia Hamidi, a Montreal representative, National uh, National Council of Canadian Muslims, and is on the air now. Uh, Razia, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. So what are your thoughts? Where do you think this is going in Quebec? I mean, it's a lot of this boils down to ugly identity politics. Uh, we've seen the same old song before with a different tune, and it's just disappointing that you know, consistently around election period, we we tend to see this. We saw this with the Plymouth government. We saw it with the Harper government, and now we're seeing it here. And the tone that's changed with the Liberals, uh, in terms of where it's directed, uh, NCCM is going to be taking and exploring all legal avenues, as I'm sure Faithful had just mentioned too. That this is going to be caught up in, um, you know, constitutional muster. It's probably not going to get through. But what's interesting that hasn't been uh, spoken of or the media hasn't touched on much is that the government doesn't really have a plan on how to implement it. There's so much um, gray and logistically. So, I mean, just Gatineau is a prime example. If you have a bus coming in from Gatineau to Ottawa, how would the bus driver Mm. implement that, right? Wow. Uh, As uh, was referred to er earlier, as Faisal said, do you think this is the politicians using uh, the courts as a scapegoat and then just sitting back and saying, see, it can't be done. We tried. Let's move on. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think this is just a ploy until, you know, elections roll around. Once I think that's done and if liberals are able to secure their uh, position again, I don't think we'll, this will see the light of day again until probably another election period. And, I mean, just the basics of when you pull apart this uh, legislation, it really is not neutral, right? It targets a specific group. It definitely marginalizes uh, Muslim women who do wear niqab, which are a very small fraction and, uh, is this an issue? How big an issue is this? I mean, you know, don't they have to prove it is an issue of ID, communications, and security? Um, has it been a problem? I, I love the line that our director actually used where he said that this is an invented problem with an, a, a made-up solution. So to this date, there has been no uh, incident of a woman who's wearing a niqab, the full face uh, veil, that has not shown her face for security purposes or has denied... Um, or has refused to. So, says, you know, there's no incident that's happened. So why are we even focusing on this? A recent poll that came out actually last week here in Quebec showed that this is one of the most lowest um, lowest issues that Quebecers are concerned with. It's not even in the top 10 or top 20. So why is the government giving it so much attention, so much taxpayers' money going into it? Uh, Razia, I'm going to play uh, devil's advocate here. What would you say to those who say this oppresses women and it's not equal? That's a very general statement to make, unless they've sat down and interviewed every single woman. Uh, Each woman has a choice to wear or not to wear, and that shouldn't be dictated by the government. That is not a neutral stance. It is, um, you know, people bring their own biases and prejudices to go and make a blanket statement that, you know, women are being oppressed to wear this is absolutely inaccurate. A lot of the young women here that have been interviewed actually uh, just this past week, they have chosen to wear it. It is their choice, and, the you know, and the government's doing the exact, um, is, is really perpetrating that by, you know, dictating if they can or cannot wear it. Uh, what position should the prime minister be taking on this? Considering, you know, this is, although provincial and federal issues, this is his party that's, that's making this decision. Um, unfortunately, I know that they can't intervene too much into provincial politics. He did make a statement yesterday that was quite diplomatic. But, uh, you know, we've seen other statements by Ontario premiers and MPs come out. So it's been against, you know, this legislation expressing their disappointment. So that's been... Uh, you know, nice to hear their support coming out. But, uh, I mean, we can't, this is going to be taken to the Supreme Court. So even if the Prime Minister doesn't say anything, we do have the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that protects the rights of all Canadians and obviously Muslim Canadians by extension. So, um, you know, he's obviously going, he's voiced his sentiments yesterday, which I think were um, very well received. Uh, should the PM take a stronger stance? Um, I mean, I, I would like to see him take a stronger stance, um, but obviously when it comes to politics, I'm sure because it's his party, there's only so much he's at liberty to say. But when we saw the Harper government putting this out federally, he did take a strong stance. He spoke out against it. So, I mean, it doesn't take, um, you just you can use the same sentiments as well. But I hope we hear from him um, more on this issue if as it continues to unfold.
Uh, where do you see this going? H- how long do you see this being uh, top of mind? It doesn't appear this will go away. Yeah, it's, I mean, especially because elections are next year, so I don't see it going away immediately. However, um, I think the more that people come to understand the how vague it is and, how, you know, um, that the government actually doesn't have a plan on how to implement it, there will be a lot of uh, questions being asked, and uh, we'll probably be seeing a lot of, you know, legal avenues and actions taken. So I'm not sure if it will even see the light of day. It might just be caught up in a lot of you know, debates back and forth. And, um, yeah, and I, I'm sure as soon as the election campaign's done next year, we'll see it. What is the feeling in Quebec about this, both within and out of this community? Unfortunately. How are they feeling, to, how are they feeling today? Yeah, I mean, obviously, as a Muslim-Canadian woman, and as a woman, you know, there's been, it's just constantly frustrating to see the government um, be in the closet of women, right? We need them to step out of this. This isn't a discussion to be have to be had at um, at a legislation level. And what, when the government endorses or pushes forward a legislation such as this, it really sows the seeds and gives legitimacy to those groups that want to see, um, you know, Islamophobia at the front and center, who um, you know act upon those racist ideas and views. And that's what's most concerning is that, I, you know, we've already seen that Stats Canada released a report earlier this year that there has been a significant over 200% spike in hate crimes against Muslims. And I feel that legislation like this are only going to further uh, increase that number and incidents. And oftentimes the victim of those are women. Razia Hamidi has been with us, Montreal Representative, National Council of Canadian Muslims. Razia, thanks for the time. I know you got to run. We appreciate the insight. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk about something that is probably uh, equally as divisive as this situation in Quebec. Let's just look south of the border. Uh, President uh, or former President George W. Bush gave a speech yesterday in New York in which he delivered a scathing warning about the current president. Didn't name him, but certainly it was obvious where he was going and talked about Trump's America first philosophy. Here's a couple of clips uh, from that speech. We've seen our discourse degraded by casual cruelty. At times it can seem like the forces pulling us apart are stronger than the forces binding us together argument turns too easily into animosity. People of every race, religion, ethnicity can be fully and equally American. It means that bigotry or white supremacy in any form is blasphemy against the American creed. All right, that is uh, former President, U.S. President George W. Bush giving a speech yesterday uh, in New York. Oddly enough, Barack Obama uh, also giving a speech yesterday and uh, both sort of said this, you know, uh, in, in their own ways, said kind of the same thing. And uh, it was fascinating hearing it from uh, both uh, former uh, presidents, one being Republican, one being a Democrat. Let's bring in George Breckenridge, retired political science professor, McMaster University, get his take on all of this. George, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. So what does it say when in, in one day you get two different presidents from two different political parties beating on you here? Well, I'm sure the timing was a coincidence, but it is remarkable that the two of them, um, in in quite different, you know, they showed the very different styles, um, and in different situations. When Obama was campaigning for a Democratic candidate, really took on very directly the whole um, almost. Well, Bush also talked about policy, but the most important thing was what was in that clip. And Obama said some stuff, things very similar, talking about uh, divisiveness and... Um, and talking about going back to the previous century. Well, yeah, that's, that's right. And, and uh, uh, you know, on isolationism, on anti-immigrant stuff, and very powerful right at the end, you know, talking about uh, white um, supremacy is a, is a blasphemy of an American, an American creed. That's, that's a remarkable statement. 
And um, so, I mean, Bush could not be more, you know, he's, he's not the best orator in the world, but that's not the point. He, he was a, it was almost a systematic ticking off. But as you say, what, what stands, everything that Trump has done and stands for. What do you think coming from an orator as he? I mean, the fact that George W. saying this. Yeah, well, well, that's right. I mean, he has he has not he has said very little. I mean, he's. Well, I always felt that when he left Washington, he was quite relieved to go back home and stay out of politics. He more or less said that he's you know he hasn't been in, actively involved at all, very occasionally, and so for him to deliberately. Um, you know, make a make a choose to make a speech like this, and uh, you know, which is I say is a line by line almost indictment <laughs> of everything that Trump Trump stands for. It was really quite remarkable. How does this play to Trump's supporters? Having two political parties, yours and the other, uh, mm-hmm. both say this uh, at the same time, or does this fall under the whole populist movement? Meaning, we don't like either of them. Both those guys. Are I bad. think. I think it's the latter. I think the the diehard uh, Trump supporters, and we're again we're talking only about you know about thirty percent of the population, but nevertheless, the diehard they don't they don't care about any of that. You know, they they just love you know his. Trump's, you know, in the, in your face, tell it like it is, yeah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. So I don't think that makes any impression on them. But there are a lot of other people, I think, people who may have a lot of Republicans who voted for Trump in the end, often quite reluctantly or because they didn't like Hillary, um, who, you know, who will this will this will make a, an impression on. So what does Trump or his staff, White House staff, uh, other Republicans, how does this play with them? Well, especially coming from Bush. Well, it's interesting because, you know, even in relation to John McCain recently, you know, where John McCain mm-hmm. is not only, a, you know, a war hero yeah. and a very distinguished senator, but he's dying. You know, he's, in, you know, he's got a yeah. brain tumor. He's, he's not going to last very long. Trump attacked him, you know, for attacking him. He's saying, I'm, you know, I'm real when I, I get really ugly when I, you know, when I counterpunch. So he prides himself in being a counterpuncher. Now, the interesting thing is going to see what's he is he going to counter, try to counterpunch on Bush. That will be fascinating. You know, so far he hasn't said anything. Uh, and, how uh, do other Republicans re- react to what Bush is saying? Because obviously the Republican Party is divided. What does this do for that? Well, I think I think you know Bush was not a very successful president, but he's a, he's a, everybody knows he's a very decent man. You know, he's a very good man in, in all kinds of ways. He just wasn't really up to the job of president, I don't think. But even that, I, th- I think that's why this has such an impact, because yeah. when even he is saying something well, like this, right. we got to be listening. Well, that's right. That's right. And given that it's so rare, you know, that he has spoken out so rarely since he left office. I think he's widely respected. What always happens to presidents is their popularity goes up after they've left office. Right. And that has been true of Bush as well. But he's widely respected mainly because... People see him as a very decent guy, you know, as a well-meaning, decent guy. And, you know, a lot of what happened during the presidency kind of fades into the background. So an awful lot of Republicans have a lot of respect for him, I think. So but, is Trump going to answer this, do you think? Well, Although I guess, the, we thing, I, I guess he would have tweeted by now if he was. Well, I don't know. In the case of um, Senator Corker, who really hit him very hard... You know, talking about adult daycare center and stuff like that. He took several days before, <laughs> mm. and then he he comes back with this. You know, little. You know, Cork is quite short. Little. You know, <laughs> you know, it was pretty. Much, he didn't really hit very hard. And um, what he's going to, you know, what's he's going to say about Bush? This is a, must be a real dilemma for him because Bush is so well liked and respected as a person <laughs> that <laughs> it would be. Very foolish, and yet normally he can't help himself, you know, even when it's counterproductive politically, as it so often has been, you know. Uh, he has, you know, he's, he's this counterpuncher, you know. And, and, of course, the other thing about him is that what people say is, well, he always punches down. Mm. You know, he punches at people yeah. <laughs> below him. Yeah. You know, Bush is not down in relation to him, and so mm. it's going to be fascinating to see how he responds, if he responds at all. And if he doesn't, of course, that's quite significant. Uh, lots of chatter, of course, how uh, President Trump handled uh, talking to uh, the widows of soldiers yeah, and yeah. such and what he had said to them. Right. Yesterday, General Kelly, who, you know, he dragged into all of this yeah. mess, uh, gets up and defends uh, Trump. 
do we just have to accept that um, this isn't this man's strong suit, and by that I mean public relations, and oh, yeah. it is what it is? Well, I think, I mean, obviously... Does it mean his heart's not in the right place? Uh, I, I'm trying not, to be gen- no. I'm trying to be generous here, no, George. I, I would I would be too. I don't think so. The the calling uh, bereaved um, parents or wife or whatever it is is, is a, obviously a tremendously tough thing to do. And I don't know how long the tradition goes back, but it goes back some some presidencies. Um, one of the, one of the roles of the president any the president plays is head of state. And, and and also head of the military in, the, in this particular situation, commander-in-chief. And um, so a lot of people have said the president is the mourner-in-chief, the comforter-in-chief, things like that. Some presidents are good at that. Obama was brilliant at that, absolutely, and Bush was good. But for somebody who's a narcissist like like Trump, they one of the one of the one of the things that goes with that condition. Um, is that they lack empathy, you know? Yeah. And so I think it, you know, I don't want to hit him too hard on this at all because it's a very, very difficult thing to do, and it's just not in him. You know, he's just yeah, not. Yeah, that's what I mean. He's just yeah, does not right. the guy to be doing this. Like, you know, that's well, right. General Kelly said when he asked his advice of to do of what to do on this, yeah. General Kelly said, don't do anything. Because he obviously knew. It's yeah, he's be... just not it's something he's just not ever going to be good at because yeah. he just lacks that dimension of empathy that most people have in some degree at least. Um, so he, he's better just to avoid that kind of situation altogether. And, and uh, you know, there are other ways in which you can mark these things. But, of course, it, typically what happened is, you know, he gets very defensive and he, he makes, he makes you know, he says that Obama and Bush never did it, which simply wasn't true. And um, so he's always on the defensive. You know, he's never, he never apologizes. He never gets anything wrong. It's never his fault, um, which, again, is all part of his general condition. That's just, the, yeah. you know, just what he is. And uh, you're not going to change any of that. Uh, your thoughts on um, he, he, whether the NAFTA deal will go through? Do you think he will? Oh. Do you think he will kill this, or do you think in the end cooler heads prevail? Well, he he apparently was talked sometime before about you know initially he was just going to walk away, and he was talked out of it mainly by people around him and cabinet members pointing out just how negative effect this would have on the American economy. You know, so he was talked out of it. Now, what he's what he's been doing, and and by the accounts that we get, is the people who are actually doing the negotiating are kind of sheepish about the whole thing. I mean, a bit shamefaced about the whole thing. The orders yeah. they're given to make these really completely unacceptable proposals, a whole series of them, and that normally is. I mean, it's not, one of two things is happening. Either this is you know the art of the deal. This is the way Trump operates. Yeah. You know, you you put out these you know outrageous demands, and then you know you settle for something, you know, less than that. But you're trying to intimidate your your the person you're dealing with, or it's it's getting ready to walk away. Now, walking away is not that easy because it would require the Congress to act, and Republicans have traditionally been. Free traders, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yeah, it's their the, it's the their economic, deal. The economic case for keeping NAFTA, you know, even if you all, you know, even if you modernize it or you know, it's just overwhelming. You know, they, they, there were three hundred chambers of commerce mm-hmm. <laughs> sent a letter to him saying, "Please, you know, please don't walk away from NAFTA." And uh, so the economic argument is just very, very strong, and uh, and yet at the same time, you know. Um, Trump has always apparently, you know, been against trade, you know, been against trade deals, or at least multilateral trade deals. And that's one of the kind of funny sort of policy prejudices. He doesn't know much about policy generally, but that's one of the prejudices he brings with him. So it's very difficult to say which way he's going to go on that, you know, whether they'll get down to, you know, serious negotiations after both Mexico and Canada have told them, you know, that these, these are simply unacceptable, you know. And, of course, they're very sensibly saying, we're not going to walk away. You know, you know if Henry's going to walk away, he'll have to walk away. We're not going to walk away. We're going to stay here and negotiate. Hmm. 
And it's very difficult to know which way it's going to go. I can't let you go, George, without asking you your opinion on uh, what's happened in Quebec uh, yesterday with the law <laughs> passing that says that well, face coverings are not allowed in public service or those yeah. that administer public services. How's the prime minister going to react to this? Well, I mean, it's tricky in many ways. He hasn't reacted very strongly. Uh, it's tricky because, you know, on the one hand, he's, he wants to... This is very popular in Quebec. And, uh, therefore, you know, he's got a lot of liberal seats to defend in a year or a couple of years or so. Um, I, I, Quebec has, has a different tradition in some respects from the rest of Canada in that it, it is to some extent latches on to what is the French tradition of, you know, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a secular country, a secular tradition. And once the, I mean, as you remember, Quebec used to be a very, very, very Catholic country. Mm-hmm. And then that suddenly sort of collapsed in the 60s. And it's gone to almost to the other extreme. I think the, the, uh, the, the ban on the niqab, I mean, obviously there are some situations, some security situations where the face has to be shown. I mean, but in, ter- in general terms, and I think it's one of these what somebody called a solution looking for a problem. Yeah. It's not a problem. You know, the, the number of women who, uh, whether they're choosing to do this or whether their husbands make them do it, who knows? It's difficult to say. But the number of women that you see wearing a niqab is very, very small. Uh, how, it's not a problem at all. How do you say that it's secular? And, and, and you know, I mean, they said ID, communication, and yeah, yeah. I forget what other other excuse they used. Um, but how can you say it's about being secular when there's a cross, like in the National Assembly, well, right, 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 right above right. all the people yeah, right who made this decision? I've pointed that out. Yeah, there, there, there are... Uh, uh, well, you know that's a. They, you can argue that's a. And I and I certainly understand why it's there. I get it. I understand well, the history. I understand the history by all means. But you can't. Of, you can't. It was a very Catholic country for most. of Absolutely. I notice you're saying country. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, but the point <laughs> is, at the end of the day, you know, I, I respect that. I understand that. But that's not secular. No, it isn't. It isn't. So you get these kind of contradictions. I I, I think the. The uh, the liberal government in, in the provincial government is really doing this simply because it's popular to get it off its back, and uh, it, it's much milder than what the PQ was was proposing, you know, yeah. some years before. It's not nearly as comprehensive. It's much more limited. Yeah, they don't think it's gone far enough. But, well, that's right. That's right. And uh, you we may, you recall that you know Harper played around with this issue towards the end of his term as well. And uh, it, it, it's just, I think it's completely unnecessary and, uh, and pandering to, you know, to um, prejudice, really, is what it amounts to. How big a thorn is this in the side of Justin Trudeau? Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know too much. I mean, he, his position is very clear. He just hasn't just chosen to speak out, <laughs> speak out particularly on it at this particular time. I mean, everybody knows he's not. Does he have to? Does he, should he? I think he probably should. Yeah, I think he probably should. You, you, you can understand the political calculation involved, but I think it's, uh, it's important that you stand up for principle on these things. George Breckenridge has been with us, retired political science professor at McMaster University. George, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Same to you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Should corporations weigh in on major major events uh, via social media? A backlash and debate has been brought forward after the Hudson's Bay Company tweeted condolences for Gord Downey, uh, which, I don't know, you know, does that matter? Uh, But when you include a picture of three jean jackets that had the Hudson Bay tag on them, I don't know. That kind of sounds like exploitation. And again, I wasn't aware that the Gord shopped at the Bay. I I didn't realize you get those hats and those suits at the Bay. Is there a deal we don't know about here?
Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, uh, Alyssa PR, and of course you can read her stuff occasionally in HuffingtonPostCanada.com and PR Daily. With us now, Alyssa, how are you today? Oh, I'm fine, Scott, and how are you? I'm waiting for my Gord Downey deep discount at the Bay. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? The, the Bay's a big company. How, how does this happen? You know, it sometimes it happens when you leave everything in the hands of a community manager, and a community manager is someone who handles all of the platforms on on social media for a company. So perhaps somebody thought this was a really great idea. Maybe they passed. I can't imagine that there's no checks and controls over at the Bay. I think there's quite a bit. And then maybe they pass this uh, through to their manager who thought, well, let's just not say that. Let's, you know, he got all his stuff here. He always wore jeans. So why don't we tie in a promo? So maybe that went through marketing, but it didn't go through communications. And hopefully the communications people would have not seen this because had they seen this, there would have been a great big, okay, this is really in bad taste, dial back. What if no product involved? I mean, uh, Chevrolet Canada, uh, they weighed in. Uh, they had a, an image of a black and, a black and white image on the highway. Uh, and the uh, caption, over 53 years, a kid from Kingston sped his life on the road, inspiring Canadians with music from coast to coast. Today, we say goodbye to an icon, RIP. That's from Chevrolet Canada. Okay, I didn't have a problem with that one. As long you as the road what? doesn't I, have a Corvette you know on it? I didn't have a problem with it, number one. I just thought, you know, it is within the brand, number one. I do understand the whole thing about the road. But, you know, the other thing, too, is is that they really didn't name, they, they were talking about Cord Downey, everybody knew they were talking about Gord Downey, maybe because there was somebody made a tenuous tie between road, cars, etc., that they felt that it was in poor taste. But honestly, I have a hard time seeing that one as poor taste. And the other thing, too, is notice how the comms person, the communications person, um, talked, got, got back to the reporter and said, we yeah. did not think this was in poor taste, and they defended it, it, appropriately so, whereas nobody can be found right now at Hudson's Bay because everybody's hiding around their desk pointing fingers. So... I didn't have a problem with that, but you raise a really good question. The question is, when is it appropriate for a brand, for a company, to spontaneously tweet, um, whether it's about a disaster or whether it's about the loss of an icon? And you really just can't do it because, well, gee, we should do it because everybody else is do it. That was my next it. question. Can companies, because that's what we do in life. We just mm-hmm. wade in and out of the conversation, no matter what we know, what we don't know. If it's there, we just wade in and wade out. Can companies just wade in and wade out of stuff? No. No, they can't just do that. And they can't do it because somebody there has a, a deep affection for Gord Downey and feels that their company should represent that affection. That is not necessarily so. Companies are not expected unless there is a very, very strong tie between if that person was representing the company um, or involved with the company. Unless there is that strong tie, there's no reason really for a- any brand to weigh in uh, because of it. Like, no, so For example, if you had a brand that was you know, always tied to the Canadian consciousness and the Canadian way of life, then, yeah, maybe it made sense. But really, you don't have to jump on the bandwagon in these things. Your customer does not expect it. And the other thing is, it has a huge, huge uh, probability of going wrong. Your daughter's home. Oh, you know. Ah, that's fine. I warned you, Don't you worry about that. Hey, man, I love it. It's life. I could have kept her waiting outside. No, don't you worry about a thing. Let me ask you this, though. If you do something like this and you wade in on the death of Gord Downey, whether you're Hudson Bay or Chevrolet, where do you draw the line? At what point do people say, well, you know, you weighed in on Gord Downey, but you didn't weigh in on this. Why didn't you? And aren't you setting yourself up for stuff? Well, yes, you are. And also, you're setting a dangerous precedent. And I say dangerous because you don't want to get into the point of you're waiting in because you did it last time. That doesn't make any sense. So, for example, if Hudson's Bay is getting a, you know, getting a little bit of a, a kick because they did such a thing, do you think that they're going to do this again? No. Do you think that they'll have a few more checks and balances th- um, in place that will you know, prevent this from happening? Well, one can only hope. So you don't have to do this, and there is no expectation. It's mainly an internal pressure. Um, maybe from people who work in the social on, on the social aspect of a company, but really you you can't, just can't weigh in because everybody else is because uh, most of the time it doesn't make sense. 
Did many companies did many companies do this, or was it only a couple like the Bay and Chevy? Um, you know what? I didn't really see too many. Like no. I saw a beautiful ad in the Globe and Mail from Sunnybrook. Yeah. And See that makes sense. The ad sense. was super tasteful. It yeah. showed like a feather. Yeah. Uh, it talked about you know the way he raised awareness for the type of brain yeah. cancer he had. And even if you want to use that to raise money, go ahead. Well, and, and you know what they didn't even they yeah. didn't even make it a call yeah. to action. I think that that was what was so beautiful about the ad. Like yeah. obviously they're there. Yeah. Obviously they're there to raise money. But at the end of the day, I thought it was very very tasteful, and he had, and it made sense, Scott. Yep. He had a connection with the hospital now. Had somebody else weighed in who also has a, a brain cancer entity, that would have been in poor taste. Hmm. Um, your thoughts on the Prime Minister's reaction, including the crying? You know what? I think that that is totally expected of uh, Justin Trudeau. He, we know that of him. He does wear his heart on his sleeve. Um, I think that it was, I don't think it was disingenuous. I think it was very genuine. So the fact that it was very genuine and he was a fan, people knew that he was a fan. Again, I don't see this as bandwagon jumping, but people knew that he was a fan. So the, the, um, emotion was genuine and I, I thought that it was heartfelt. I mean, listen, there's a lot of things I disagree, uh, about the, you know, the man's policies, but this I didn't have, I didn't have, uh, I don't quibble with. I have no problem with showing emotion. I love it. I'm a suck. I'll cry at anything. Honestly, I, I'm that kind of guy. Um, <laughs> but I think he's trying to sell it. Do you? I do. I do. Oh, my goodness. I, I, I'm no, not, I, I I'm not, you know, that. I have no doubt in my mind he was upset. And and if I was up that uh, upset like that, I'd be showing it too. Oh, but to me, to me, God, he was... Oh, you are jaded. I oh, think, my goodness. Honestly, I can't believe I'm I have, this. I have no problem with him up there and shedding a tear or cracking a voice or showing obvious signs of true emotion. I have no problem with that. But, but to me, he seems to promote it. Okay, I'm not telling him to suppress it. Don't hide it. Don't suppress it. But I feel he's promoting it. But Just what like did he, he really do? He made a statement. They had a minute of silence in the House of Commons. Again, you know what this for me comes back to? Mm. What happens when the next tragedy happens? What happens when the next person dies? Where do you draw the line? Well, what you know, happens what, he's when the Prime they're... Minister, so it kind of all falls into his lap. And and the, the, I'm sure you know there are some things that Justin Trudeau does because it's it's heart over brain. And um, I think I think it was an over. I think it was an over. Things that they're they are the right thing to do, and he yeah. doesn't really care what his handlers think, and no. he doesn't really care that the fact that people might looking this as an emotional play because. And I think uh, that's great, but I think he overperforms it. Yeah, I really I do. I, to me, it it just feels like he's he's showing it off. Well, he's, he, he's not only emotional; he's I mean, showing like it off. If you were to ask me about. Well, what did you think about that whole show at the pizza parlor in in uh, Scoville? Mm, yeah. Did you think that looked like sort of like, you know, man of the people, two uh, guys that were born with silver spoons <laughs> in their mouths, and one of them who is married to one of the richest can- uh, families in Canada? Did they kind of look like man of the people? So if you would ask me about that, I might have a different reaction. Yep, yep. No, I understand. But Our- this one, I'm yeah. going to give him a pass, Scott. No, I really am. I, I will disagree on that one. Um, let me uh, let me ask you your thoughts on uh, – let's move to Quebec next. Your thoughts on the full face coverings in Quebec uh, and how does the prime minister respond to this? Oh, well, he really can't. I mean, you know what, and I read something about this yesterday and interestingly enough, and the fact is he will not wade into Quebec politics. He really – he just won't. Um, how can he not provi- win it? I mean, the how only thing he he'll say that he has said, Scott, is that this is a provincial decision. Yeah. And, you know, at this juncture, kind of like midway through his term, in order to weigh into Quebec politics, which is typically a stronghold right now. But this is a social issue. This isn't about hydro. This isn't about pipelines. Listen, listen. This is morality Uh, here. Well, I, first of all, I can't believe this, but this is a very popular, apparently, thing to do in Quebec because it plays well with the electorate, which is why I think they did it. What do they call it? Meilleur ensemble, better together. I can't believe how this is better together when you are outrightly making pariahs of people. Like, honestly. Like, this somebody wants to get on a bus and they have a head covering and they can't do it. Somebody wants to go into a bank and make it, they can't do it. Like, are you kidding me? 
I think it, personally, I think it's despicable. I really do. Well, I really the, do. At the end of the day, it, it's why now? Where was the need? What's happening? Where's the communication ID security issues? Where's the problem? There is no problem. Well, there is no problem, but I think what they're doing is, listen, uh, I'm very jaded about government decisions, honestly, because I rarely think that they're for the good of us all. I think they're for the good of the few. Um, likely there was some polling that went on. I mean, listen, what goes on in behind the scenes to get to this point? There's polling. They read the polls. They read inside the lines of the polls. And they say, they see that, you know what, there are people who don't like this, so why don't we exploit that? Because there's not that many uh, Muslim women, apparently, in the province who do walk around with a full uh, niqab, but it does disturb some people. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, you're not going to lose a lot of votes from the people who are really angry with you, but you may gain some votes, may, may gain some votes from people who think, well, it's about time somebody did something, mm-hmm. which I think is despicable. Like, honestly, would that ever play in any other province? Well, clearly the other provinces, at least Ontario anyway, are speaking out, as uh, has the Prime Minister. But again, I, you know, this isn't a pipeline issue. This isn't a transportation issue. This isn't about Bombardier. This is about human rights. So I can't see him not weighing in on this. He well, has I'd no choice, especially, especially when it's... to see how this plays out. Especially when it's a Liberal Party, although, you know, different provincial, federal and such. It's still, come on, it's the same cloth. Yeah, I know, but I think that Justin Trudeau picks and chooses which... You know, people of Canada, he supports more than others. So I think that his advisors are probably telling him to keep quiet. Fascinating. All right, uh, George Bush and Barack Obama both slag uh, Trump on the same day from uh, two different presidents, two different presidents from two different political parties. It's uh, a juicy Friday, Scott. It is very juicy. <laughs> I love it when it's juicy. Yeah. So, what's your take when you get two different presidents saying basically the same thing? Well, you know, my take is is that it's expected from Barack Obama, but my take is that it is not expected from George Bush. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I mean, listen, uh, you know, when you think of old Republicans, what do you think of? You think of the Bushes, mm. you know, you don't think of Mitch think McConnell. Of, well, you don't think <laughs> of him. It's like you, you make Republicans long yeah. for the days yeah. of um, George Bush, uh, senior and junior, so to speak, and uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. You really do. And, you know, here you have someone who, you know, maybe you didn't agree with Republican politics, but you could take George Bush. You really could take George Bush. Honestly, compared to what we have now, uh, this is a very, uh, like, the the timing of this um, speech is interesting. He has obviously been sitting, you know, on the sidelines watching all of this, listening to all this, and probably disgusted by all of this since Trump took power. And finally, he has decided he took an opportunity of a speaking engagement to really sort of throw a missive in his direction. And I have to say that the speech, I don't know who wrote it, and I'm wondering if David Frum wrote it, but that's just speculation, Scott. But the speech was beautifully crafted. Yeah, it was well done. It was. It pointed fingers without uh, haranguing anybody. Uh, the turns of phrases were um, quite clear. And they made a point in in several ways. And I have to say that I was very impressed by that. And, you know, I think that there are are many, many Republicans who uh, side with George George Bush's sentiments. Yet, um, you know, there's this sort of like uh, tight phalanx around him uh, right now with Trump, that people who will, you know, are being told to support him with um, whatever may be. But this was really, really a strong message uh, sent to Republicans and the Republican Party. That was my question. Is is this a message uh, that was uh, contrived specifically for other Republicans? I think it was a message that was, uh, I think it was a nonpartisan message, and and I'll tell you why. I think that people wanted to, I think it was to remind people in general, Democrats and Republicans, of what Republicans used to stand for. I think that that was the first thing. And then I think the second thing was, is that we, or I, am not happy, I, George Bush, am not happy with the direction things have gone. So I just don't think it was directed to Republicans and to Republican moderates. I really think that it was directed to the whole spectrum to make people understand that the Republican Party that you see in power is not necessarily uh, one that fully supports Donald Trump. 
So how does Trump react to this? Well, he hasn't really said much. I mean, the only thing he's done is put uh, General Kelly forward. And, you know, these things really make me sick, I have to tell you. I mean, this whole thing about the way he talked to the... Um, oh, the, the uh, soldiers' wives. Soldier. I know. I thought of this last night when I'm watching General Kelly defend him on the news Let last night. It's you, like, why, why, do these do guys, why do these guys always have to come out and decode what Donald Trump says? Why well, can't well, Donald you, Trump you speak know, for himself? I read the entire quote from Daniel Dale, who's down there reporting... Um, for the globe, I believe. And when you read the quote, first of all, the syntax is, I mean, even if you were never good at grammar, this is impossible. Like, none of it makes any sense. (laughs) So what you decode from that is, is that, well, you know, I don't do it all the time, but nobody else did it all the time, too. And you know what? Obama didn't call uh, General Kelly. And But what they did do is that they had a, a luncheon for all the uh, families of fallen soldiers, and then they brought them in all at once. And I do believe that uh, General Kelly sat at Michelle Obama's table. So you know there were different shows of respect and condolences. But honestly, to start calling out other reporters now, when he first did this, I think I forget who it was. Which uh, there was a U.S. reporter that called him out and said, "Well, that's not true." And he goes, "Okay, well maybe not. I, I might have overstepped, or I might have made that up, which is true. I mean, you know, Donald Trump makes up a lot of things on the fly. But then to make General Kelly stand up yeah. and talk about his son, that he has never, whom he has never talked about before, yeah. is really heinous. Yeah. And trust me, this was not his first choice to do. He strikes me as a very thoughtful and private man. Yeah. And the loss of a child is absolutely huge. But, you know, Trump does this. So, you know, once a week you'll see these sort of like Trump prayer sessions with all his men around him. And they're all thanking uh, Donald Trump in the name of the Lord for what he brings to America. Mm. So this is sort of a... Uh, he was made to do this. I do not believe, I cannot believe that General Kelly would have honestly said, okay, well, I'm going to get up and talk about my son in order to defend you. I, I don't understand why Donald Trump has to get everyone else to decode what he says and, and explain what he well, says. Why he can't he? English, why can't, I mean, yeah, but why can't he? Command of why the, can't he defend himself? Language. Why can't he speak for himself? Well, he is. <laughs> he is speaking for himself, which is why, which gets him to, into trouble, which yeah. puts you know, the news cycle in a, in a bit of a spin. Yeah. And no matter how you spin it, you know, even Kelly and Conway would say, well, what? you know, we're here, we're talking about a fallen soldier. How can you be even mentioning this? And then they'll try and sort of poo-poo it away. But really, you know, this is the problem that he has all the time. So he says something off the cuff, unscripted, not on teleprompter. And then his staff have to, are busy spinning. Yeah. Okay, how do we get out of this one? Mm-hmm. That's what every day at the White House must be like. How do we you get w- ourselves out of this one? Would you like to work there? Absolutely not. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Alyssa Friedman. Sarah Huckabee Sanders looks like the girl who would steal your homework <laughs> and say that it was her own. Oh, Alyssa Friedman, public relations <laughs> consultant. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Okay, you too, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.